we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. So this is message number 27 in that series now. The title of this message is Makers and Takers. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11. And we'll be covering uh, the first 19 verses of this chapter in this message. And to begin, I want to read verse number 1. And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and preach in their cities. At 72 years old, Michelangelo began work on what would become known as the Florentine Pieta. Uh, The work was a sculpture from marble that supposedly would depict the dead body of Jesus being held by his mother Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene, and Nicodemus. Now, this was not a commissioned piece, so it was a personal pursuit for Michelangelo, and he was reported to have worked tirelessly on it, oftentimes going well into the night, um, and he worked on this this way for eight years. And his frustration with this work grew to the point that he attempted to destroy it, and he did end up knocking several pieces off of it. He didn't completely destroy it, and it wound up in the hands of a man who hired another sculptor to um, repair it as much as possible, and I understand that it currently sits in a museum in Florence, Italy. Well, historians and Scholars and artists have debated the reasons why that Michelangelo began to destroy this piece that he had worked so hard on for so long. But whatever the reasons were that he had, it's actually a a phenomenon that's known um, throughout history, the history of creative work that artists have come to, to hate, to despise their own works and may even destroy them or or mar them um, in various ways. But really when we think about it, I I don't think this is something that is just limited to artists, but it seems uh, something of of a common human experience in various forms about things that um, we have produced, things that we have done, things we have worked on, maybe things we have um, conceived of in our in our minds that we have brought to some sort of fruition to come to hate and despise them later and and frankly just be happy if they were destroyed and many artists throughout history have have done just that well I wonder if we see any parallels between that and first century Israel with the coming of the Messiah so maybe by the time that that we were done that question will make sense. But as we come to chapter 10, which is, which is what we covered in the last couple of messages, that chapter was an extended teaching session. Again, it was similar to uh, the Sermon on the Mount that we saw in chapters 5 to 7, but it, it was different in a number of ways. It wasn't quite that long, um, but it was a, a long extended teaching session. It was all uh, a part of, of one whole 
And Jesus there commanded and instructed his 12 apostles. And Matthew repeatedly makes reference to the fact that he's saying these things to his 12 apostles. And what he's having to say to them uh, is, is mostly concerned with their immediate mission. You see, they were, um, after that Jesus had instructed them and given them their orders... They were to go into the cities of Israel. They were to go into the cities of Israel exclusively. They were to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, of the fact that the kingdom was near because the Messiah had come, and they were to proclaim this to the Jews of Israel only. And as they went, proclaiming this message that Jesus had had given them to proclaim, that he himself had proclaimed, that John the Baptist had, had also proclaimed, he gave them power, authority. He gave them power to work the signs of the kingdom regarding um, healing of of all kinds of sicknesses and diseases and casting out of of devils and these sort of things. And these signs uh, serve to authenticate the apostles as witnesses of the Messiah, and they also confirm the message that they were preaching. And that message, again, was an echo of what Jesus had preached and what John had preached. Uh, And Jesus mixed in, in chapter 10, some prophetic elements that, uh, as as we mentioned then, will be given more attention later in, in Matthew's gospel. But they were to understand the program that they were a part of. And they were to... Um, to be prepared for uh, persecution, for opposition, for rejection, um, even for death. And this was because that generation of Israel was not going to receive the Messiah and his kingdom, though they certainly didn't uh, understand that at that point. Well, the mission of the apostles was framed by urgency. And this was just the same way that it was with the mission of John. When you go back and you um, look to uh, John and to his preaching, and I I know we don't have a lot of the account of John. Uh, We have a long extended account prior to his birth and numerous prophecies and and things like that. And We don't get a lot of the ministry of John, but we do get quite a good bit. And when we look at the message that John was preaching, you notice that there's there's an urgency to this message. He, he said that the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit is going to be cut down and it's going to be thrown into the fire. In other words, um, he preached a message of repentance and, and repent now um, was the message because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the message, the, the message and mission of John was, um, was noted by this urgency. And really, if you think about it, the, the message of Jesus was as well. Um, we have, you know, the four gospel accounts of the, the life and ministry of, of Jesus Christ. But, I mean, his ministry really only covers maybe about three years um, span of time. And so uh, John would even say in, in his gospel that, that these, are just, these are just some of the things. We couldn't even, we couldn't even begin to record um, and, and to recount all of the things that Jesus said and did um, during his time here on the earth. And so there was obviously an urgency about um, the message of, of Jesus and, and his mission as well. This is what the apostles um, were commanded to. And why? Well, as we move into to chapter 11, Matthew is continuing to show urgency 
And the reason why is because of the limited time window that then existed. John was preaching repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand right now. It is at hand right now. Jesus was was saying the same things. The apostles were sent out to say the same things. Why? Because the Messiah was here. And he was here for only a short time. So that window of opportunity was very limited. And so there's a sense of urgency about all of this. Now, as we come into chapter 11, this chapter marks a transition in Matthew's gospel. So to this point, Jesus has mostly enjoyed wide popularity with multitudes of people. They have been crowding around him. They have been following after him, wanting to see what he did, wanting to hear what he said. And so that begins to change here as Jesus departs from commanding his 12 apostles and he begins speaking to the multitudes of Israel. Now, prior to this, if we think about from this point backward in in Matthew's gospel, there certainly have been some what we might call some rumblings. Um, There have been some uh, criticisms of Jesus, some questions, maybe some objections, and and even... um, starting to build up to some of the accusations and things that um, will be made and will get stronger. And, and all of these questions and objections and things eventually give way to open hostility, to plotting the murder, the execution of Jesus Christ and his rejection and will ultimately lead from there to the judgment on that generation of Israel. Now, here in in this message, we're looking at verses 1 to 19, and these verses particularly center around the ministry of John the Baptist. And though he was alive at the time when when this account is given here, we're told that he was in prison, um, his ministry and his life um, were soon ended after this time. So Jesus shows in this passage the connection between John and himself and past Old Testament prophecy and that present generation of Israel. Now, Jesus clarified John's ministry and the role of Israel in the fulfillment of prophecy, and he ends up comparing that generation of Israel to foolish children who weren't satisfied with either John or Jesus, proving that they did not have faith but were unbelieving. So as we look at this passage, we have three main parts that we want to consider. Verses 1 to 6, where we see the questions of John and the emphasis of the signs of the Messiah. In verses 7 to 15, uh, we have Jesus speaking to those who have ears to hear. And in verses 16 to 19, uh, the unhappy children of Israel. So we're going to begin with the first part here in verses 1 to 6 and the signs of the Messiah. So let's look at verse 1 again. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. So this verse functions as um, a transition verse between what what came before it and what comes after it. And Matthew notes here that, that Jesus had finished giving orders to his 12 disciples. Now, again, 
the mention of the 12, of that number, the number of disciples, the number of apostles, he even says back in chapter 10, the mention of the number 12 here ties this to the previous section, particularly beginning there with chapter 10 and verse number 1. And we also see his use of this term that's translated made an end, when Jesus made an end of commanding. This is another form of the word that's used in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. That's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, showing that that Sermon on the Mount was a complete, ordered teaching. And so, so it is with what we've got in Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus is instructing his 12 apostles, it, it's, it's all a unit. And you'll remember we, we dealt with it in, in large part because it does all, um, does all go together. Now, Jesus went on, he tells us, to preach and to teach in the cities of Israel. And this is similar to some summary statements that we have seen, like in, in chapter 4 and verse 23 and uh, chapter 9 and verse 35. And those tend to mark off different sections in Matthew's gospel. And so it's not surprising to see that here. Let me come to verse number 2. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. So you'll notice, you'll notice that this verse gives us a time reference to John being in prison. Um, John was in prison, and he had been in prison a, a sufficiently long time in order to hear reports of Jesus' works. I think it's back in chapter 4 and verse number 12 um, where Jesus began his Galilean ministry after that John was put into prison. And so a lot that we've seen between chapters chapter 4 and, and chapter 9 uh, or, or chapter 8 at least um, a lot of those things were things that took place during that time that John was in prison now remember that Matthew's not giving us a strictly chronological account and this is one of those places um, where you're you're going to see um, that that this is put in a different place from some of the surrounding chapters and things if, if someone's trying to order it in a strictly chronological f- fashion Um, But we can see that it is certainly arranged and it's thematically linked with the commissioning of the 12 apostles that occurs in the previous chapter. It's obviously continuing the urgency of this mission to Israel and ultimately the reception of the Messiah by Israel, which is, uh, of course, a rejection of the Messiah by Israel. Now, Christ, this, the works of Christ that is mentioned in verse number 2. And again, Christ is the New Testament equivalent to the word for Messiah in the Old Testament, the anointed, the anointed one. And the works that he was doing was the teaching, the preaching, the healing all manner of sicknesses and diseases, uh, those summaries in you know, you know, chapter 4, verse 23, and chapter 9, verse 35, as well as, as, well as the specific instances that we have seen um, referred to in this gospel to this point all these different works that Jesus was doing and John has heard reports about these things and so in response to this in light of this he sends word to Jesus by some of his own disciples and tells us in verse number three and said unto him now these are the disciples of John and said unto him art thou he that should come or do we look for another? Now, this um, he that should come is clearly a reference 
to the Old Testament promised Messiah. Are you the one who should come, or do we look for another? And the coming one as a a title or a referent to the Messiah is is seen in places like Psalm 40 and verse 7 and Psalm 118 and verse number 26. Well, But why did John ask this question? And there have been a lot of answers that have been proposed as to why John had his disciples ask Jesus this question. And some, and maybe even most, suggest that John at this point was doubting. Uh, John had been in prison for some time at this point, and, and John's imprisonment, as, as we know, did not end well. It, it ended with his beheading. It ended with his execution. And so John has been in, in prison for a time, and this was not um, any sort of a, a country club prison type, type setting. Um, this was a place where John was certainly enduring um, hardship and suffering in this prison. And some suggest, well, you know, John at this point, he, he's been languishing in, in prison, and, and um, the Romans have, have not been um, expelled from Israel, um, and, and, and all of these things. So um, maybe that John was doubting that Jesus really was the Messiah after all. But I think when we read the whole context and we look at the response that Jesus makes to John's disciples first, and then later he, he makes these remarks to the crowd about John, that actually seems quite unlikely to be the case. If we consider that this question was prompted by the reports that John heard about what Jesus was doing, well, there certainly seems to be some connection there. Well, if John heard a report of the works that Jesus was doing, and then we go on reading in the context, Jesus essentially tells them, take back a report of, of everything that I'm doing, all the things that John had already heard from his prison. Well, if, if, if that is the case, why would John really be doubting that Jesus was the Messiah? Remember that John had preached that Jesus was the one who was to come and the one who was to bring fiery judgment on the unbelievers in Israel. And if you look at uh, like Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, and you see some of John's preaching there. And again, back to that urgency. Why? Because the Messiah is here, and, and, and he's got his fan in his hand, John said. He's going to thoroughly purge his floor. He's going to baptize you with fire. Um, he, he's going to cut down the trees that don't, don't bring, um, bring out good fruit, and he's going to um, burn them up. But Jesus had not done that. Rather, Jesus had gone about, as Peter would later say in the book of Acts, doing good, healing all manner of sicknesses and diseases and casting out devils. And it's been observed by by numerous commentators and and historians. And if if we think about the the rural environments throughout Galilee and these regions where Jesus was working, there had to be a time when, when sickness was just, just about entirely banished, completely put out of, of, the, of the region. But rather than bringing judgment and all of these things, he had, he'd healed multitudes of people, all types of sicknesses and, and impairments and even demonic possession. And so John's question 
seems to be about timing and whether there was some other one who would come with judgment because Jesus clearly had not done that even though John preached the message from the Old Testament prophets that he would. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. So he's telling these two disciples of John to go and report back what they have seen and what they have heard, not secondhand information as firsthand witnesses. And presumably, um, they have seen um, Jesus work miracles. They, they have heard Jesus' words themselves and are to go back and to tell this to John. And he continues on in verse 5, The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So these are all works that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. They were messianic signs, and they were kingdom blessings. These, these were all um, future kingdom conditions that, are, that were prophesied in places like Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 18, and chapter 33 and verse 24, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, and chapter 61 and verse 1. These are blessings there as well as in other places that are described of the future kingdom. And, and these signs were given impartial by Jesus as confirming signs of the Messiah and his kingdom. Now, Jesus will explain later that such signs meant that the kingdom had come near. And that's in chapter 12 and verse 28, the next chapter. Now, the words and works of Jesus, in other words, confirm his Messiahship. And th those are the things that Jesus tells these disciples to take back to John. And then he ends this with verse 6. He says, And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now the word for offended, it means to um, cause to stumble or to, to trip up. So the blessing here is pronounced on those who are not stumbled by the person, the words, and the works of Jesus Christ. In other words, rather, those who receive him. And I, and I mean receive him, who he truly is, who he, who he is revealed to be, who he has shown himself to be. And all that this word has to say about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he will do, and all, all of these things, the reality of who Jesus is, not being stumbled over that, but rather receiving him as he is for who he is. Well, then we get to the next part where Jesus turns to the multitudes and um, speaks to them about John and refers to those that have ears to hear. So let's look at um, verses 7 and 8 here. And as they departed... Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. 
So Jesus is addressing now the multitudes, the crowds, the, these large crowds of, of people that um, are around him. And he's speaking to them about John. Now, obviously, it seems from uh, the flow of the, of the passage that they have witnessed, they have heard um, John's disciples coming to Jesus and the exchange that took place between them. And so now John, Jesus rather is turning and speaking to the multitudes about John. And Jesus' words to them about John seem to be intended to dissuade them, the crowds, against thinking that John was doubting or wavering about Jesus. Remember that John was the one who first came onto the scene, preaching about the one who was coming after him. John was the one that, that told um, the, the people of Israel, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, pointing to Jesus Christ. John was the one who baptized Jesus. And, and when Jesus, the, the Spirit, like a dove, descended on him, and the voice of God the Father spoke from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am, am well pleased. And so the words of Jesus here seem to be to this crowd intentionally designed so that they would not begin to think that John was doubting or wavering about who Jesus really was. Now I say that because of the, the two particular illustrations that Jesus chose. He refers first of all to a reed shaken with the wind, the, the reed growing along the banks of the water. Um, uh, a weak plant, it's, it's easily blown about in every direction. Whatever way that the wind is blowing is the way that it's, that it's going to bend. And the, uh, the second is that of these soft-clothed courtesans, courtesans rather. Th these that cannot, um, they are you know, hanging about um, the king's houses and, and um, they, they can't endure hardship. They're used to luxury and convenience and and that is what they expect and of course if that's not going to be the case they're not going to be there they're going to be somewhere else and so you can you can see sort of the connection between these two illustrations that if if John was either of these things then the hardships that he was enduring would be something that would that would blow and bend him and and make him waver but Jesus point is actually that John is neither of those things he wasn't shaken by being in prison or, or doubting Jesus. John does seem puzzled somewhat by timing. And timing is exactly what Jesus emphasizes next. Verse number 9. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. So the multitudes went out to hear John because they believed him to be a prophet in Israel after four centuries had gone by without a prophet in Israel. Jesus confirms here that John indeed was an Old Testament prophet. His ministry was much in line with theirs, and it was a continuation of theirs. In fact, in many ways, it was a fulfillment of theirs. But he also says he was a prophet. 
but he was more than a prophet. Now, the, now him being more than a prophet is something that will be explained later in the context. But it means that he was greater than the Old Testament prophets, beginning all the way back with Moses, because he was fulfillment of their prophecies on one hand, and on the other hand, because he saw the Messiah, and he saw the kingdom near at hand, which were things that the prophets longed to see, but they only saw them through faith very far off. Well, John was closer to the king and the kingdom than any Old Testament prophet. So Jesus says he was more than a prophet. And he goes on in verse number 10. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. So he quotes here from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 that John was the promised forerunner who would go before the Messiah and prepare his way. In verse 11, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus goes on to say, Out of all men that had lived, there was not one greater than John the Baptist to that point. Now this greatness that Jesus is speaking about, it had to do with the time that John was given to live, with the mission that he was appointed to fulfill, the Messiah that he was blessed to see, and the kingdom that was nearer to him than it had been to that point. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says that there there had been none greater than John the Baptist to that point. And this, again, ties back into Jesus saying he was more than a prophet. Now, this statement about John being the greatest and then the least being greater, this is not a statement about reward. It's it's not a statement about being exalted. It's It's a statement about the kingdom. The least, that term that he uses, which, you know, means small, smallest, littlest, the least, the less, it's obviously a contrast with this term for great that he has been using to describe John. And he's saying here that even the least person, the smallest, most insignificant perhaps in terms of their uh, gifts and their works that, that, that they have done, the lowest one, the lowest of the low, who is in the kingdom is greater than John. Well, why? Why did Jesus say that? Well, because John wasn't in the kingdom. He only saw it near. He didn't see the kingdom come. He didn't see it be established, but he saw it come near. 
In fact, he was closer to the kingdom than any of the Old Testament prophets all the way back to Moses had been, and therefore he's greater than them and was greater than any man that had been born to that point. Verse number 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. The days of John the Baptist until now was less than about two years' time, when you, when you think about it. I mean, we have a way with the expression of this language. It's almost, it's almost poetic uh, and, and makes it sound like some great epoch of time that's being referred to. But really, again, you're only talking about a couple of years or so. For the days of John the Baptist, the beginning of, of his ministry and, until now. But we have to mark this time period because what Jesus says pertains to this time period. It's not before that because the kingdom wasn't near. So John is here. He's greater than the prophets because he's closer to the kingdom than any of them had been. Nevertheless, you know, Jesus went on to say that even the least who actually is in the kingdom when it comes is greater than, than, than John in, in that current situation. So this time period that he's referring to, the kingdom was near, and he says the kingdom is suffering at the hands of the, the violent or the forceful, and they are snatching it um, by force. The kingdom that was near was opposed by the religious leaders, the orthodox of Israel. And it was taken or it was snatched in the sense that Jesus would later explain, for instance, how the Pharisees kept people from entering the kingdom. They were shutting it up. Uh, Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 13. Well, the point is that many in, in Israel, they didn't like the kingdom that John, Jesus, and the apostles proclaimed, which was the actual kingdom described and promised in the Old Testament, they much preferred the kingdom and the Messiah according to their own minds and what they had perceived of. So in other words, they rejected both Messiah and kingdom. And that's the point of Jesus' statement. Verse 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. The prophets who were less than John, because they did not see the things that John saw. They didn't live in the time that John lived. And of course, law and the prophets here um, would also function as shorthand for the Old Testament Scripture. In other words, they're all. The entirety of the Old Testament is pointing to this very time. Until this time, they're pointing to this Messiah and to this kingdom. Verse 14, Jesus then says, and if ye will receive it, this is Elijah which was for to come. So now Jesus had already said that John had fulfilled Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 1, and we could add to that Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, uh, the way I think some of the other gospel writers actually um, add that as a reference in being fulfilled there by John as well. And Jesus here says that John could have fulfilled Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, if, you've got to notice that condition in that passage, if, he says, if they would have 
received it. What's the difference between Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 and Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1? Well, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 prophesies the forerunner of the Lord. And Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 to 6 prophesy the forerunner of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That's the, the time that we know of, the second coming of, of Jesus Christ. The great day of the vengeance of God when he um, takes vengeance on all of his enemies and establishes his kingdom and, and rule over this earth. So John was the forerunner of the day of the Lord. And if they would have received it, he could have been the forerunner of the day of the Lord, not just the forerunner of the Lord. But because Israel did not repent, and that's that condition there, if they didn't repent, they didn't believe, they didn't receive, they didn't confess, and they didn't follow all things that John and Jesus and and the apostles were commanding Israel to do in that time verse 15 he that hath ears to hear let him hear now this is the first time that Matthew uses this phrase in his gospel it will be featured in in chapter 13 it'll show up there four different times verses 9 15 16 and 43 and when we read it there it's in the context of the parables of the kingdom and particularly of the mystery of the kingdom and so what the phrase means and we'll look at it a little more specifically when we get there what the phrase means is having faith those who have ears to hear have faith those who do not have ears to hear do not have faith and then we get to the conclusion of this part here in verses 16 to 19 and some very unhappy children of israel Verse 16, but whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows. Now, this generation refers to the generation of Israel to whom the Messiah came. And we see it used that way in chapter 12, verses 41, 42, and 45. Later again in chapter 23 and verse 26. Other gospel writers use it. It's, it's, it's used, I believe, in the book of Acts as well. It was the generation that John the Baptist, that Jesus, and the apostles all preached to. And there are parallels between that generation to whom the Messiah came and the generation of Israel who came out of Egypt only later to die in the wilderness because of their unbelief. So here's what Jesus says about them. This is the comparison he makes. Verse 17, and saying... We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. And this is essentially a proverbial saying, and it is about the response of Israel to both John and Jesus as he explains in verse number 18. The complaint in verse 17 is essentially, you haven't done what we wanted you to do. You haven't done what we demanded of you. You haven't done what we expected of you. And that's true in both the cases of John and Jesus. And that's the point that he makes. Verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he hath a devil. Verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. They accused John of having a devil. And we know that John, again, he, did, he, did, he didn't live in soft clothing in king's houses. 
He lived in the desert. You know, he ate strange food. He wore strange apparel. He endured hardship all of his life, even to the very end when he was beheaded, executed um, for his preaching. He says, we've, we've piped to you and you haven't danced. In other words, they condemned John and his asceticism, considered him a madman being possessed of a devil. The son of man, and we've already a number of times talked about that particular title and, and, and the messianic um, title that it is and, and where it comes from and, and all of that. So I'm not going to go over all that again. But Jesus is here obviously referring to himself, the son of man, this, this promised Messiah, the one um, who receives the kingdom from the ancient of days on the heavenly throne um, to come to the earth. The son of man, he says, came, came, came to the earth, came eating and drinking. In other words, John was an abstainer. Um, and Jesus was a partaker. Uh, he, he feasted, he drank, and they said of Jesus that he was a, he was a glutton and a wine-bibber, one that abused alcohol and abused food, both of things of which are sins that are condemned in the Bible, and the moderate use of either of those things not condemned as sin in the Bible. And, of course, Jesus was not guilty of abusing those things but this is what they said of him a friend of publicans and sinners which essentially means um one who who associates with one um who uh, accompanies one who sits down at, at at feasts with them and again all these things that um the pharisees had had been teaching for at least a couple of of centuries that 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 defiled them and 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 made them unclean and perhaps um throughout judaism that that root ran um back deeper than that so they weren't satisfied with either one of them but wisdom jesus said is justified of her children in other words ultimately john and jesus are right um, and those who believe in them um, will be vindicated while those who refuse and, and reject will be condemned and confounded so the Pharisees, the, the leaders of Israel, in, in the main, the majority of the Orthodox of Israel, they actually had the opposite problem of the dissatisfied artists that I talked about um, back at the, the beginning of this message. Those dissatisfied artists, you remember, they, they created a work, and they weren't satisfied with the work and because they have some dissatisfaction with the work that they themselves had produced, they want to destroy it. Well, the Pharisees actually are, have something of an opposite phenomena. They, they created a work of their own production, of their own mind, of their own imagination, based on their misinterpretations, in, in, in many cases, um, of the Scripture. And, and not just that, but also their refusal to receive and to believe the words of John and Jesus and his apostles. So they had created a work. In other words, they had fashioned a Messiah. And they had fashioned a kingdom according to their own desires and their own thoughts and their own expectations. And they loved their own creation so much that when the reality was presented to them 
the real Messiah and the real kingdom at hand, they went about to destroy the originals. The originals that they had made their impressionistic reproductions of. So they're like an artist that sets about um, perhaps maybe to paint some object and or sculpt some object. And the artist has in mind this goal of realism. And so wanting to produce a, a, a representation of this that is so accurate to reality that it's, it's, you can't, it's hard to tell the difference between the two. And their production being so much more highly favored that they actually destroy the original object. I don't want you looking at that. I don't want that. My production is much, much better. Well, obviously this applies to much more than first century Israel. But even to us today, we have many people who are doing the same thing. They have produced a Jesus, a Savior in their own mind that acts in certain ways, that does certain things, that says certain things, certainly doesn't condemn them um, for what the Bible calls sin. But believing in a Jesus who is only the product of your impressionistic imagination is not believing at all. You could say that the Pharisees believed in a Messiah. The Pharisees believed in a messianic kingdom. The problem was they didn't believe in the true Messiah. They didn't believe in the real messianic kingdom. And so their belief was actually unbelief, and it condemned them to destruction. So if the person and the words and the works of Jesus are something that upset you, then something is wrong. We have to believe the record that God gave of his son. This is the reality. Well, we also have to be careful. You see, because of the Pharisees loving their impressionistic reproduction so much, Jesus said they sought to snatch that kingdom away. And in fact, they did snatch it away from that generation of Israel's, of Israel. We also have to be careful that we don't attempt to snatch that kingdom, making it something other than the literal, visible, tangible, geopolitical future kingdom where Jesus Christ, the son of David and David's Lord, sits on David's throne in Jerusalem, ruling over all of the nation of Israel and all of the nations of the earth in his glory. We have to be careful that we don't make it into something else. Be careful that we not be guilty of what Paul condemned and warned against in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 to 18. Those of us being non-Jews of the nations boasting over the Jews of Israel as if we have taken something away from them. We have not.